Ladies and gentlemen, are you excited? Well, your neurons are, and this is how it happens. Hi, I'm Dr. Chris Masterjohn of chrismasterjohnphd.com, and you're watching Masterclass with Masterjohn, and this is the 39th in a series of lessons on the system of energy metabolism. In our current discussion on ketogenic diets, we want to talk about why are ketogenic diets effective for epilepsy as a bridge to talking about how ketogenic diets might be beneficial for other conditions as well. But in order to understand why ketogenic diets are helpful for epilepsy, we need to know something about what causes epilepsy. And in order to do that, we need to break down some of the basic science of how the brain works when we are in health so that we can then look at what goes wrong in epilepsy, and then that will allow us to look at how the ketogenic diet is helpful in that case. And in this lesson, we start by looking at how neurons get excited. The ketogenic diet has neurological benefits. Why do we have to eat such an enormous amount of food? On the screen, you can see the 2005 consensus definition of an epileptic seizure that was proposed by the International League Against Epilepsy and the International Bureau for Epilepsy. That definition was an epileptic seizure is a transient occurrence of signs and or symptoms due to abnormal excessive or synchronous neuronal activity in the brain. We can tease out two concepts from that. One is abnormal excessive neuronal activity, and the other is abnormal synchronous neuronal activity. In order to understand what those are, we want to first talk about what is normal neuronal activity and what is normal neuronal synchrony. To have excess neuronal activity means to have neurons excited more often than they should relative to how much they're inhibited. And so in this lesson, we're going to talk about how are neurons normally excited. So let's take this to ground zero. A neuron is a cell, and the neuron is the basic cell of the nervous system. Neurons consist of three parts. The dendrites are where information comes in, and that information could be something sensory, like light, sound, heat, touch, or it could be information coming in from another neuron that's communicating in a chemical way or an electrical way. And we'll talk later in this lesson about how, the, the, how neurons will communicate with each other in those two ways. The cell body is where the nucleus is, it's where the energy metabolism is, where most of the things we usually associate with the cell are, and that's where we could envision information processing to take place. And then the axon is information out. That information out could be going to another neuron, it could be going to a muscle to make you move, could, could be going out to different targets depending on the context. 
apart from neurons, there's one other major cell type in the brain called glial cells. Neurons are responsible for information transmission, whereas glial cells support a number of assistive roles. So glial cells will assist with neuronal information transmission and assist with the energy metabolism of neurons, but they won't be doing the information transmission themselves. They will be responsible for the clearance of metabolic waste, especially during sleep. They will be responsible for the synthesis of the myelin sheath that insulates certain axons, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. And they participate in growth and repair processes. There are three different types of glial cells. The cells that are responsible for synthesizing myelin are oligodendrocytes in the central nervous system and Schwann cells in the peripheral nervous system. There are astrocytes and there are microglia. And we'll talk about those as we need to in the context of this discussion. What's shown on the screen is the most basic form of a neuronal circuit. Actually, it's not the most basic form because it has an interneuron and you could have a circuit without interneurons. But a very simple way of looking at a neuronal circuit is to imagine one neuron, the cell body is here, the dendrites are here, and then the axon is here, taking information in from some source. So we can imagine a circuit where we're taking in sensory information, that information comes through the circuit, and then it makes us move to do something. A reflex, for example. The dendrites, where information comes in, will have sensory receptors. We will call this the afferent or afferent axon. This is where the information into the circuit comes. So even though the axon is information out from this neuron, in the context of the circuit, since this is, we could imagine, a sensory neuron, that's the neuron that is taking information into the circuit. And so the axon, information coming out of that neuron, is coming into the rest of the circuit. And that's distinguished from the efferent or uh, the efferent axon where the information goes out from the circuit. And if you want a simple device to remember this, you could think of E for exit. So the information will come in and then that neuron will meet another neuron at a synapse. A synapse is where two neurons connect. Typically, the synapse is the axon of one neuron connecting to the dendrites of the next neuron. So information out from neuron number one to information in in neuron number two. It's not always the case. So shown here, we have the axon branching off and meeting up with these dendrites, but this axon could be connecting directly to the cell body. Usually at the synapse, the communication between one neuron and the next is going to be chemical using neurotransmitters. Sometimes it's electrical. In this case, because we have three neurons, we call the middle one an interneuron. This interneuron is a local circuit neuron that has a short axon. And then it connects at another synapse to the information out neuron, the efferent neuron. And the information goes down and it goes to some other target. In our example, we could imagine it targeting a muscle cell. And so we could have some sense connecting through to some motion that you do as in, a, as in a reflex. Now, this circuit could be very different. So interneurons could be gone from the circuit, making it even simpler, 
Or there could be a lot of branching to many different local targets, making the circuit far more complex. And in fact, a lot of neurons often have thousands upon thousands of connections, making the circuits very complex. If we look at the circuit in a little bit more detail, we can see as follows. The presynaptic axon, the axon coming in at the synapse, is going to end in an axon terminal where there will be vesicles of neurotransmitters that can be released into the space between the presynaptic axon and the postsynaptic dendrite. On that postsynaptic dendrite, there will be neurotransmitter receptors. And so if that vesicle releases the neurotransmitters into the synaptic cleft, they can bind to the neurotransmitter receptors, and that would be an example of the main type of communication at synapses, which is chemical communication. The chemicals that communicate are the neurotransmitters. At this synapse, there will often also be glial cells, and those glial cells will be affecting the synaptic communication through the uptake and degradation of neurotransmitters from the synaptic cleft, so we could, if these are released, we could have reuptake into the presynaptic axon, but we can also have uptake into the glial cell. And then we also have modulation of the ions needed for the activity of neurotransmitter receptors, and we'll talk about those ions momentarily. The major ions that are involved in the communication of neurons are shown on the screen. On the left, we have chloride, which is the major negative ion. The other four that are shown there are all positive ions. We have sodium, which is the major extracellular positive ion. We have potassium, which is the major intracellular positive ion. And then we have magnesium, which is notable because it blocks certain neurotransmitter receptors. And we have calcium, which is notable because it acts as a second messenger to control cellular processes including neurotransmitter release itself, but also many other processes. By second messenger, we simply mean that there's some first messenger, for example, a neurotransmitter binding, binding to a neurotransmitter receptor, that might then lead to some kind of cascade of reactions that eventually causes calcium to be released into the cell. Calcium would be a second messenger because it's secondary to the initial stimulus, and when the calcium levels in the cell change, that's what brings out the actual end-stage processes that were initiated by the first messenger. Whether a neuron becomes excited is determined by the voltage across the neuronal membrane. The voltage across the membrane is called the membrane potential, and this refers to the difference in positive and negative charges on either side of that membrane. We express the membrane potential as the charge of the inside of the cell relative to the outside. And the resting membrane potential is negative. In neurons, it's typically negative 40 to negative 90 millivolts. And to say the resting membrane potential is negative means that there's more negative charge inside the cell than there is outside the cell. To create a voltage across the membrane requires energy. 
Remember in lesson one, we said that the second law of thermodynamics holds that everything wants to disperse. That means that electric charge wants to disperse. Positive and negative charges want to balance themselves. Nothing wants to be concentrated in one area versus another, according to what happens spontaneously. And to concentrate something in a given area requires energy. And so what we'll see is that the fundamental thing that is driving the voltage across the membrane is ATP, providing the chemical energy to make that happen. And when we look at the components of the resting membrane potential, what we'll see is electrochemical gradients. We first looked at electrochemical gradients in lesson one and in lesson three when we talked about the hydrogen ion gradient that is used to synthesize ATP. And we said in those lessons that an electrochemical gradient consists of two parts. One is the electrical gradient, having more positive charge in one area, more negative charge in another. The other is the chemical gradient, having a specific chemical, like a specific chemical species, like a hydrogen ion, more in one area than the other. And we said that because the hydrogen ion has a positive charge, its gradient is electrical, its gradient is also chemical, so it's an electrochemical gradient. When we look at the resting membrane potential, we'll see that the primary participants are sodium, potassium, and chloride. And so we have three different positive ions that each have their own chemical gradient, but together they make an electrical gradient because they're contributing to the net positive charges on one side and the net negative charges on another side. So let's look at specifically how this is driven. There are two transporters that are primarily responsible for the resting membrane potential. Those are the sodium-potassium ATPase, shown on the left, and the potassium chloride co-transporter, shown on the right. The sodium-potassium ATPase hydrolyzes ATP and uses the energy from ATP, the chemical energy, to drive, to pump sodium to the outside of the, mem to the, outside of the cell and to bring potassium inside the cell. Every time this happens, there are three sodium ions that go out and two potassium ions that come in. That means two things. Number one, the chemical gradients are being created to make sodium concentrated outside the cell and potassium concentrated inside the cell. But also, we already have a net negative resting membrane potential created by this one pump because there are more positive ions being sent out of the cell than there are being taken in. That creates a concentration of positive charge outside the membrane, making the outside of the cell more positive and relative to the inside more negative. We can see over on the right the results of the sodium-potassium ATPase, creating a potassium gradient and a sodium gradient. The potassium gradient is symbolized in two ways. There are more potassium ions shown in the inside of the cell than outside, and then this arrow is dark on the inside, reflecting the high concentration of potassium there, and light on the outside, reflecting the low concentration of potassium outside the cell, but the arrow is pointing towards the outside of the cell. And what that symbolizes is that because of the high concentration inside, Potassium wants to, according to the second law of thermodynamics, 
disperse to the outside of the cell. In sodium, we see the opposite. There's more sodium outside than inside. The arrow is dark on the outside, light on the inside, and points sodium to the inside, saying that sodium spontaneously wants to come inside the cell. Now, although the sodium-potassium ATPase is always acting to maintain this sodium gradient, and there isn't really a contravailing force contributing to the resting membrane potential, there is a contravailing force that mitigates or reduces the degree of the potassium gradient. And that's because the potassium gradient is used as a source of energy to create a third gradient, which is the chloride gradient. The potassium chloride co-transporter pumps chloride against its concentration gradient to concentrate it outside of the cell. That requires energy. The energy provided to make that happen is by co-transporting chloride with potassium. Potassium has the opposite gradient. It actually wants to go outside the cell, and as it does go outside the cell, it releases the energy stored in that gradient. So this reduces the degree of the potassium gradient in order to create the chloride gradient. That chloride gradient is symbolized over on the right, and there are more chloride ions outside the cell. The chloride arrow is darker on the outside of the cell, lighter on the inside of the cell, and points to the inside of the cell, showing that chloride wants to come in. On the right, we take the net effect of these gradients to say that there's relatively more positive ions than negative ions on the outside of the cell, and there's relatively more negative ions than positive ions on the inside of the cell. And that is what contributes to the net negative resting membrane potential of negative 40 to negative 90 millivolts in the average neuron. In order to excite a neuron, we need to change the resting membrane potential. When we have a membrane potential that, say of a postsynaptic dendrite, that can be changed by a neurotransmitter, we call the resulting membrane potential the synaptic potential. So in the absence of the neurotransmitter, we have the resting membrane potential. Then when the neurotransmitter acts, the result is the synaptic potential. There is a threshold potential that we need to cross in order to make that neuron get excited and fire up its activity. The most common way to activate or excite a postsynaptic neuron is for an excitatory neurotransmitter to open a sodium channel in its receptor. In the diagram on the screen, we have a neuron that has a resting membrane potential of negative 65 millivolts, and it has a threshold potential of negative 50 millivolts. That means that we need to cross that threshold to something that is even less negative than 50 in order to excite that neuron. And the way that this is happening is that the excitatory neurotransmitter needs to bind to its receptor so that it can alter the sodium gradient that's present on the membrane, which is contributing to the electrical gradient where the outside of the cell 
is more positive and the inside more negative. When the excitatory neurotransmitter binds to the receptor, a sodium channel within the receptor opens up. That allows sodium to come from the outside of the cell to the inside. Remember on the left, when we have the resting membrane potential, there's a lot more sodium outside than inside. That means that if you open up a channel and you just allow sodium to follow what it wants to do spontaneously, it will come in along its concentration gradient, and that will cause the gradient to disperse. That we have lessened the sodium gradient when we do this is symbolized by the fact that on the right, we now have a relatively even distribution of sodium across the membrane that's also symbolized by this bidirectional arrow saying that once sodium is fully dispersed, it could, it could go either way. It would be equally likely to go in one direction versus the other. Now that we've dispersed the concentration of sodium outside the membrane, we've also dispersed the concentration of positive charge outside the membrane because sodium is positively charged. Sodium has taken positive charge inside the membrane. That means that we have lessened the differential of positive outside and negative inside. We say that on the left, when we have this very large differential of voltage across the membrane, we call that polarized. On the right, we call it depolarized. And the net result is that the membrane potential has become less negative. So in our example, we had a membrane potential of negative 65 millivolts on the left. We've gone to a synaptic membrane potential of negative 45 millivolts on the right. We've crossed the membrane potential of negative 50 millivolts. That has made the neuron excited, and it's made the membrane depolarized. Conversely, the most common way to inhibit a postsynaptic neuron is for an inhibitory neurotransmitter to open a chloride channel in its receptor. We take as an example, again, this neuron that has a resting membrane potential of negative 65 millivolts, and it has the same threshold potential of negative 50 millivolts. But in this case, what we're looking at is an inhibitory neurotransmitter receptor that has a chloride channel. So when that neurotransmitter binds to the receptor, it opens up the chloride channel, allows chloride to come into the cell, dispersing along its concentration gradient. And that chloride gradient, where chloride had been highly concentrated outside the cell versus inside, is now dispersed across the membrane. That takes negative charge inside, and so we go from a point where there was more negative charge inside the membrane than out to an even greater differential where there's even more negative charge inside than out. And so we say that instead of depolarizing the membrane, instead of lessening that voltage differential, bringing chloride into the cell has hyperpolarized the membrane. It's made that differential even more. And by bringing the resting membrane potential, in this case from negative 65 millivolts to a synaptic membrane potential of negative 70 millivolts, we've gone even further away from the threshold potential, making the neuron harder to excite. 
Now, any given neuron is likely to be innervated by multiple, even thousands, of excitatory and inhibitory synapses, and it's the sum of those inputs that determines whether the action potential is initiated. So we can imagine in this very simplified version that we have three synapses. Two of them are excitatory. Those are going to depolarize the membrane when the neurotransmitters bind to the receptors. And one of them is inhibitory. That's going to hyperpolarize the membrane when the neurotransmitters bind to the receptors. And the net activity of those different synapses will lead to either net depolarization, or it won't. If you have excitatory synapses that are depolarizing the membrane, but the inhibitory synapses are hyperpolarizing the membrane to the point where they're canceling out the depolarization, you will not get depolarization. If you had net hyperpolarization, it wouldn't actually do anything. It would just keep the neuron from getting excited. So hyperpolarization doesn't change the activity of the neuron. It just makes it harder for the neuron to get net depolarized. You sum these inputs to have a binary result. Either you depolarize the membrane to the extent that you've crossed the threshold potential, or you don't. If you do, you get what's called an action potential that is then sent down the axon of that neuron. And we'll talk about how the action potential is created now. In the creation of an action potential, which again is the signal that transmits down the axon of the, of the excited neuron, there are two key players. One is the voltage-gated sodium channel, and the second is the voltage-gated potassium channel. These channels have different behaviors in response to depolarization and repolarization of the membrane. For the voltage-gated sodium channel, when the membrane is polarized, the channel is closed. Sodium cannot go through. But when the membrane is depolarized, the sodium channel opens. That's why it's called voltage-gated, because as the voltage changes to the depolarized state, the channel opens. During sustained depolarization, the channel is actually inactivated. And then finally, when the membrane is repolarized, it's closed again. The inactivated state and the closed state are mechanistically different. One is kind of like a flap that closes on the bottom in response to sustained depolarization. The other is a full closing of the channel in response to the polarized state. But the effect is similar, which the effect is that sodium can't go through the channel. Now, for the voltage-gated potassium channel, we have somewhat different behavior. And remember, in this case, potassium is going to be going in the opposite direction. So sodium is going to be coming in the cell, potassium is going to be going out of the cell. So like the voltage-gated sodium channel, in the polarized state, the potassium channel is closed. But unlike the voltage-gated sodium channel, in early depolarization, the potassium channel remains closed while the sodium channel had opened up. In sustained depolarization, again, the behavior is different. In sustained depolarization, the sodium channel had become inactivated. 
Sustained depolarization is what activates the potassium channel. And then when the membrane is repolarized, the behavior is the same. In the repolarized state, just as in the initial polarized state, both of the channels are closed. The diagram on the screen shows how the activity of these two channels allows an action potential to propagate down the axon of a neuron. So we can imagine that we start with a threshold potential being exceeded on a dendrite, and then we skip forward to how does the, how does the action potential get initiated and travel down the axon. We're imagining that there are pairs of sodium and potassium channels, voltage-gated sodium and potassium channels, at each of four points, A, B, C, and D. These are successive points going down the direction of the axon. This is, in fact, a simplification. There isn't going to be, they're not going to be exactly paired together, and there's not going to be exactly one of them at each point. But this helps, uh, this helps simplify the concepts. So as the threshold potential is exceeded on the dendrite, we have our first point, point A, where the early depolarization causes sodium to come into the inside of the cell. Now remember, sodium coming in is itself a way of depolarizing the membrane. We saw that when we saw the excitatory neurotransmitter at the synapse binding to allow sodium to come in, and that depolarized the membrane. That's going to do the same thing here. So in a sense, we have a positive feedback loop where depolarization at one point leads to depolarization at the next point by triggering the sodium channel to open at that point. Now that sodium has come in here, sodium is going to be highly concentrated in this area and it's going to want to disperse down the length of the axon towards point B. Now remember, the potassium channel does not do anything in response to early depolarization. It needs to wait for sustained depolarization. In the second row, we're seeing the effects of sustained depolarization at point A and early depolarization at point B. The sustained depolarization at point A lets potassium out of the cell. The potassium going out of the cell is what starts to lead to repolarization of the membrane. Remember, positive coming in in the first row depolarize that area. Now, in the second row, positive going out is going to repolarize that area. Sustained depolarization has also inactivated the sodium channel. So as potassium is going out, sodium stops coming in. That also assists in the repolarization of that area because you, you, do, you don't have two opposite effects going on. You have shifted fully to the positive charge leaving the inside of the cell towards the outside. But now point B is in early depolarization because the sodium had moved towards that point and had been, the sodium that came in at point A is what depolarizes point B. And the depolarization at point B is what opens that sodium channel to cause even greater depolarization, to cause even greater concentration of sodium at that point that now wants to disperse. Now that sodium is highly concentrated at point B and it could disperse towards point A 
and it could disperse towards point C. And in fact, it's going to do a little of both. But we do not want the action potential to travel backwards. We want the action potential to travel in one and only one direction. So what happens in the third row is that even though some of the sodium does travel backwards, the inactivation of the sodium channel and the continued activation of the potassium channel prevents that sodium from causing any depolarization at point A. Because even as positive charge moves towards point A in the form of sodium, that itself is just going to drive more potassium out of the cell because the potassium is following not only its own concentration gradient, but it's following the general electrical gradient where the more positive of any type inside the cell, all the more the potassium wants to leave the cell. So positive charge concentrating over here would depolarize this, but because it doesn't affect the sodium channel that's been inactivated, and because that positive charge is all released in the form of the continued potassium leaking out of the cell, the positive charge just dissipates if it comes backwards. By contrast, when the sodium moves forward to point C, we don't have any inactivation of the sodium channel. We don't have an open potassium channel because that never happens in early depolarization, only in sustained depolarization. So what we get at point C is we activate the sodium channel causing yet another event of depolarization. This basic pattern repeats itself where the action potential can next move on to point D in exactly the same way. The action potential is always going to go forward because sodium will always want to disperse from its area of high concentration to where it's lower. Some sodium will always leak backwards, but that will never depolarize the membranes there because of the inactivated sodium channels and because of the open potassium channels. So as the action potential goes down the membrane, the effect of sustained depolarization on the early parts of the membrane cause what we call a refractory period, where in order to protect any against any backward action of the action potential, you actually could not even activate that area of the axon with another excitatory neurotransmitter yet because the way that we protect the the action potential from moving backwards is to just completely disallow reactivation of that area for a time period until repolarization of the membrane has fully taken place. The axons of some neurons, but not all, are insulated with a myelin sheath. Myelin is actually the cholesterol and phospholipid-rich cell membrane of glial cells that are wrapped in layers around the axon multiple times. And the purpose of myelin is to greatly speed the velocity at which action potentials are conducted down the axon. Now these glial cells in the central nervous system, which is the brain and spinal cord, are going to be oligodendrocytes. In the peripheral nervous system, which is the nervous system outside the brain and spinal cord, they're going to be Schwann cells. Myelin has a white color, and the myelin sheath is what contributes to so-called white matter, 
which is distinguished from gray matter. Gray matter is the cell bodies and dendrites, as well as unmyelinated, unmyelinated axons. White matter is the myelinated axons that are found in the nervous system. It's especially rich in the deep parts of the brain and the superficial parts of the spinal cord. So here's the logic of what myelin is doing. If we imagine an unmyelinated axon on top, we have action potentials that need to hop in tiny, tiny units down the membrane. So we can imagine sodium channel here, sodium comes in, activates the next sodium channel, activates the next sodium channel, activates the next sodium channel. Each time we depolarize the membrane at a specific location, we're consuming time in that process. We also, we also have a risk of some leakage of the ions across the membrane that could dissipate the charges. Because in this unmyelinated, unmyelinated axon, we're going to have other channels that are doing other things. And so the more areas that we have for anything else going on, the greater the risk is that there's some inadvertent leakage that's dissipating the action potential. So the conduction velocity in an unmyelinated axon is 0.5 to 2 meters per second. The myelinated axon is shown on the bottom. The glial cell wraps its membrane around and around and around and around and around the axon, creating the myelin sheath. But it doesn't do this everywhere. It does it through large portions, but then it leaves a gap. Does it through large portions, then it leaves a gap. Those gaps are called nodes of Ranvier. And at each node of Ranvier, that is where we have the voltage-gated sodium and potassium channels that allow the conduction of the action potential. What happens is that the action potential skips from one node of Ranvier to the next. That consumes less time, and it has less risk of dissipation of the action potential. And so what we wind up with is a much faster process. This skipping is called saltatory conduction, which comes from the Latin word to jump. You can think, if you know Spanish, saltar. This saltatory conduction, or jumping of the action potential, leads to conduction velocity of 3 to 120 meters per second. Compare this from 2 to 120, and we have a 60-fold increase in the maximal speed. Eventually, the action potential comes down the length of the axon, and it comes to the presynaptic axon terminal, the point of the axon that meets at the synapse with the postsynaptic dendrite of the next neuron. What happens there in most cases, is that the action potential opens up, by depolarizing the local membrane, opens up a voltage-gated calcium channel. Depolarization causes calcium to come from outside the cell to inside the cell, and the calcium acts as a second messenger. Remember, this is not, we briefly mentioned that calcium has many roles earlier, this is only one of them as a second messenger but it's a very important and virtually ubiquitous role. That calcium, when it comes inside the, the presynaptic axon terminal, is going to bind to a protein called synaptotagmin. Synaptotagmin is going to be what causes the release of neurotransmitters from the vesicles into the synapse. 
these vesicles have membrane, each vesicle has its own membrane that is identical in nature to the cell membrane. And that means that that membrane can fuse and become part of the cell membrane. And essentially, this vesicle, once it fuses with the membrane initiated by calcium, becomes part of the membrane itself and just opens up and allows the contents, in this case neurotransmitters, to spill into that synaptic cleft. Once the neurotransmitters come into the synaptic cleft, they can bind to the neurotransmitters in the postsynaptic dendrite, and the process of communication can then begin from the first neuron to the second. Now let's take a look at some specific neurotransmitters. Although there's over 100 neurotransmitters in the brain, there are three neurotransmitters that are overwhelmingly responsible for most of the basic excitation and inhibition of neurons. Shown on the top is glutamic acid or glutamate. As described below the figure, it's the main excitatory neurotransmitter in the nervous system. Glutamate we can obtain in the diet, or as we discussed in lesson six, we can synthesize it from alpha-ketoglutarate, or as we discussed in lesson 34, we can synthesize it from glutamine. There are six classes of glutamate receptors they can be divided into three classes of ionotropic glutamate receptors and three classes of metabotropic glutamate receptors. We are mainly going to discuss the ionotropic glutamate receptors. An ionotropic receptor is a receptor that acts as an ion channel, as we were describing before. A metabotropic glutamate receptor is something that initiates an intracellular signal transduction cascade. That means that glutamate binds to the receptor it causes a chemical reaction that causes another chemical reaction that causes another chemical reaction. Some of those chemical reactions actually work by stimulating the release of calcium from multiple locations inside the cell, and calcium acts as the second messenger that then initiates other processes. The metabotropic glutamate receptors are not exclusively excitatory, they can be inhibitory, and they actually have a very wide diversity of complex roles that are largely beyond the scope of our discussions. Most of the excitation of neurons in the brain happens through the ionotropic glutamate receptors. The ionotropic glutamate receptors are have channels that allow sodium and potassium and in one specific case, calcium, to come into the cell. And we'll talk about how they work more in a few minutes. The two major inhibitory neurotransmitters are shown in the bottom left, gamma-aminobutyric acid, or GABA, and glycine, shown on the right. GABA is very widely distributed across the nervous system. Glycine is much more specifically found in the cerebellum and the spinal cord. The cerebellum is part of the brain at the base of the skull that is best known for coordinating fine motor movements, although it's also thought to have other roles. That's not to say that there's no glycine in other parts of the brain acting as a neurotransmitter. It's just that the bulk of glycine neurotransmission happens to be specifically located in those areas, whereas you can find GABA contributing to inhibition almost anywhere. As described below the figure, there are only traces of GABA in the diet, and it's almost exclusively synthesized inside the brain from glutamate. 
So even though glutamate is excitatory, it's the source of GABA in the brain, which is inhibitory. There are two major classes of GABA receptors. GABA-A receptors act as chloride channels, and they are ionotropic. They lead to membrane hyperpolarization, unlike the ionotropic glutamate receptors, which lead to depolarization. That hyperpolarization, as we described before, inhibits the neuron or makes it harder to excite. There are also metabotropic GABA-B receptors, which, again, initiate intracellular signal transduction cascades, one thing leading to another in a series of chemical reactions. Unlike the metabotropic glutamate receptors, the GABA-B receptors are in are basically inhibitory. Still, we're going to focus on the ionotropic receptors in our discussions. Glycine second to GABA is the second most common inhibitory neurotransmitter. It's predominant, as I said before, in the cerebellum and the spinal cord. And glycine receptors are ionotropic. Just like the GABA-A receptors, they are chloride channels. They can hyperpolarize the membrane, which inhibits the neuron or makes it harder to excite. Glycine can be obtained in the diet, and it can be synthesized from the amino acid serine. Among the ionotropic glutamate receptors, there are three kinds. There are NMDA receptors, AMPA receptors, and kinate receptors. These receptors are named after other things, chemicals that scientists can use in laboratories to stimulate these receptors. Glutamate activates them all, but the specific tools that scientists have used to understand them have been different chemicals that are more specific in their activation of each receptor. What's shown on the screen is the NMDA receptor, which is unique among all of the ionotropic glutamate receptors in two ways. First of all, it doesn't just allow sodium and potassium to come through. It also allows calcium to come through. And that calcium can act as a second messenger. Second of all, it has a unique feature in that magnesium blocks the channel, even when glutamate is bound to it. And that magnesium needs to be removed through depolarization of the membrane that occurs from a different receptor in order to allow the NMDA receptor to become fully activated. So what in the figure, we see three states of the NMDA receptor. In the first, glutamate is not bound to the receptor and the membrane is polarized as in the resting membrane potential. The channel is closed. When glutamate binds to the receptor, but the membrane potential is still polarized, as in the case of the resting membrane potential, magnesium is blocking the channel, even though it's open, and so no other ions can come through. When it's fully activated, it's because depolarization has occurred at that membrane from another source causing that membrane to cross its threshold potential, causing magnesium to be removed from the channel within the NMDA receptor, allowing the binding of glutamate to fully activate that receptor. That is what allows sodium, potassium, and calcium to cross the membrane through the NMDA receptor. Now, you may say, wait a second, sodium and potassium 
Why isn't the potassium canceling out the effect of sodium? Because remember, sodium wants to come in, potassium wants to go out. Well, the reason is that the reason that this does lead to a net depolarization at this specific location is that there is a greater sodium gradient that wants to come in than there is a potassium gradient that wants to leave. That's symbolized by showing three sodium ions on the outside and only one potassium ion on the inside that wants to come out. Remember, in the resting membrane potential, although the sodium-potassium ATPase is creating sodium outside, potassium inside, it's pushing more sodium outside than it's pulling potassium inside. And on top of that, the potassium chloride cotransporter is mitigating the is attenuating the potassium gradient that's being created by allowing potassium to flow outside of the cell. So even though there is a potassium gradient that wants to leave, it's weak compared to the sodium gradient that wants to come in. So depolarization near the NMDA receptor does lead to another event of depolarization through the NMDA receptor. It's also what allows calcium to come in and, and act as a second messenger in other ways. The NMDA receptor is considered to be important for what's called coincidence detection. And here we're talking about coincidence at the level of neuronal activation, not a coincidence in your life, <clears throat> but you might have multiple inputs coming in to a specific circuit in the brain. And to be able to det detect depolarization from one source and glutamate binding at this source and have the two things be required to activate that receptor is a way of distinguishing between single events and multiple events at that specific location. Now, what causes the depolarization? In most cases, it's the AMPA receptor. The AMPA receptor is very much like the NMDA receptor, but it doesn't allow calcium to come in and it doesn't get blocked by magnesium. The AMPA receptor, very simply, if glutamate binds, it activates, it allows more sodium to come in than potassium that leaves, that leads to depolarization, and if the AMPA receptor is near the NMDA receptor, then that can be what, what causes the depolarization that makes the magnesium leave to fully open up that channel. The reason this is worth discussing is that you can imagine in a state of magnesium deficiency that you might get more glutamate activation of NMDA receptors than you should. And so magne magnesium deficiency in the brain could theoretically be one of the causes of abnormal excitation. The third type of glutamate receptor is called the kinate receptors, and these are less common. Their roles are less well understood, but they seem to be involved in feedback mechanisms to regulate the tone of, of glutamate activation. There's one thing that I have not put on the diagram here, and that's that the NMDA receptor is also unique in that it has a glycine binding region. The glycine binding region also can be bound by an amino acid called D-serine. Serine is, most of the amino acids in our diet and in our body are L-amino acids. D-serine is an isomer of L-serine, 
that is specifically created in the brain for specific functions such as this. There's controversy over whether that glycine binding site is usually bound by glycine or deserine or whether it's localized to different parts of the brain. It seems at synapses that it's probably deserine that's required for this binding rather than glycine. Either way, the glycine or deserine that is contributing to NMDA activation is probably not released as a neurotransmitter, but is simply ambient glycine or deserine that's part of the milieu in the synapse created by the glial cells that are controlling that environment. Shown on the screen is the basic biochemistry of how we get glutamate and GABA. Glutamate can come in from the diet, but the primary way we get glutamate is to synthesize it from alpha-ketoglutarate in the TCA cycle, the citric acid cycle, as discussed in lesson six. The main enzymes doing that are called transaminases. Remember from lesson six that transaminases swap out amino groups between an amino acid and a keto acid, turning the amino acid into a keto acid and the keto acid into an amino acid. All those transaminases, regardless of what other amino acids they might be dealing with, are going to interconvert glutamate and alpha-ketoglutarate. They're all dependent on vitamin B6. In addition to that, we have a second enzyme, glutamate dehydrogenase, that can oxidatively deaminate glutamate to make free ammonia, or can take free ammonia to turn alpha-ketoglutarate into glutamate. The difference between these two sets of enzymes is that the transaminases are, are taking the nitrogen from glutamate and are putting it on something else to make an amino acid. Glutamate dehydrogenase is taking that nitrogen and exchanging it with free ammonia, so there is no other amino acid or keto acid involved. Glutamate dehydrogenase requires NAD plus or NADH, which is niacin, derived from niacin or vitamin B3. So we see vitamin B6 and vitamin B3 involved in just these two ways of getting glutamate. Now, glutamate and ammonia can be interchanged to get glutamine and vice versa. In other words, that glutamate that we have can have ammonia added to it using ATP to get glutamine. Or the glutamine can have that ammonia hydrolyzed off from it to get glutamate. We talked about this happening in the kidney in lesson 34. This same thing can also happen in the brain. The ATP-dependent addition of ammonia to glutamate to get glutamine is catalyzed by enzyme number three, glutamine synthetase, and the hydrolysis of ammonia from glutamine to get glutamate is catalyzed by enzyme number four, which is glutaminase. So through the diet or through alpha-ketoglutarate or through glutamine, we have our glutamate. That glutamate can then be decarboxylated by glutamate decarboxylase, enzyme number five, which also depends on vitamin B6 to get GABA. That GABA then needs to be degraded when the time is right. That requires enzyme number six, GABA transaminase, and enzyme number seven, succinic semialdehyde dehydrogenase. 
The first of those two enzymes is dependent on vitamin B6. The second is dependent on NAD+, again, derived from niacin or vitamin B3. So we see B vitamins, niacin and vitamin B6, throughout this metabolism. We especially see vitamin B6 in a prominent role because, remember, niacin is found all throughout energy metabolism. Vitamin B6 is found less commonly, and so it's very important here. We can imagine that if we don't have enough vitamin B6, we may not be able to convert glutamate to GABA. We might also not be able to get enough glutamate. We might also not be able to degrade GABA. So it's not clear that we would necessarily wind up with too much glutamate or not enough GABA, but it is clear that neurotransmitter metabolism and the balance between glutamate and GABA could be very disturbed in the case of vitamin B6 deficiency. The interdependence of GABA and glutamate is going to have implications for how this biochemistry is distributed through the cells at the synapse. We can imagine a postsynaptic neuron that is innervated both by a GABAergic neuron, meaning a neuron that uses GABA as its primary neurotransmitter, and a glutamatergic neuron, meaning a neuron that uses glutamate as its primary neurotransmitter. If that glutamate binds to the glutamate receptor on the postsynaptic neuron, we have excitation. If the GABA binds to the GABA receptor on the postsynaptic neuron, we have inhibition. The balance between excitation and inhibition is going to lead to either net excitation or depolarization or not in the case of the hyperpolarization driven by GABA counteracting any depolarization driven by glutamate. That's going to determine whether we have an action potential that's generated in the postsynaptic neuron. The glutamate is going to be coming from the citric acid cycle in the glutamatergic neuron and in the astrocyte. That glutamate is going to be released as glutamate for the purpose of neurotransmission, but for the purpose of moving things from one cell to another, it's going to be transmitted as glutamine. Putting the ammonia on glutamate to make glutamine not only helps control the balance of ammonia in the brain, which is important in itself because ammonia is toxic, but it also allows you to transport glutamate from cell to cell without it activating the glutamate receptors if what you're trying to do is transport it rather than activate, rather than excite the postsynaptic neuron. So the glutamate could be released as glutamate through the vesicular glutamate transporter, the transporter involved in allowing the vesicles full of glutamate to be released into the synaptic cleft. That glutamate there can be taken back in in reuptake into the glutamatergic neuron through the excitatory amino acid transporter shown in green, or through that same transporter can be taken into the astrocyte, which is the glial cell that will be present at this synapse. That glutamate, once in the astrocyte, can go into the citric acid cycle, or it can be turned into glutamine. The glutamine could be released back into the synaptic cleft and taken up into the glutamatergic neuron or into the GABAergic neuron. And the glutamine that goes into the GABAergic neuron is the, becomes the glutamate that becomes GABA. 
So you're not going to take glutamate, put it into the synaptic cleft just to get it over to the GABAergic neuron to make GABA because that glutamate could have excitatory effects at the synaptic cleft. You protect it as glutamine formed mainly in the astrocyte from the glutamate formed mainly in the glutamatergic neuron. And then you release it as glutamate inside the GABAergic neuron so that you can make GABA from it. The GABA can be degraded into the citric acid cycle, or the GABA can be released through the, through the, uh, the vesicular inhibitory amino acid transporter, shown in gray, where it can act on the GABA receptors, and it can be taken back up into the GABAergic neuron and reuptake through uh, any a number of different GABA transporters. The metabolism of glycine is somewhat less complicated. Glycine is synthesized from the amino acid serine, or it's gotten in the diet. If you look at the amino acid serine, you'll see that on the left side, there's a portion shown in blue that consists of a carbon and a hydroxyl group. If you cut that off, you wind up with a hydroxymethyl group. If you cut it off, you also wind up with glycine, the portion shown in black. So to convert serine to glycine, you use an enzyme called serine hydroxymethyltransferase. That's the enzyme that takes the hydroxymethyl group off of the serine, leaving glycine. Interestingly, the purpose of this enzyme is not just to synthesize glycine, it's to take the carbon atom of that hydroxymethyl group and add it to folate to form to form one carbon substituted forms of folate, such as methylene folate or methylfolate. That intersects with a system of methylation that is really a topic for in another entirely different set of lessons where we could talk about micronutrient metabolism or methylation itself. So we see here an interaction with folate metabolism in the sense that we take the form of folate known as tetrahydrofolate, the form of folate that does not have a carbon atom added to it, we add the carbon from that hydroxymethyl group, making 5,10-methylene tetrahydrofolate. That can eventually be the source of 5-methyl tetrahydrofolate. So our ability to synthesize glycine from serine is actually limited by the amount of folate that we have to accept a carbon atom. And so this actually makes the synthesis of glycine dependent on the need for methylation. And there's an argument out there that we actually need dietary glycine because we need more glycine than we can synthesize in this manner. In any case, glycine coming in from the diet or synthesized from serine using, once again, seeing vitamin B6, is the source of glycine that is released from the glycinergic neuron through the calcium-dependent vesicular release that we've talked about in previous slides into the synaptic cleft. And the reuptake is driven by glycine transporter two. There's another glycine transporter known as glycine transporter one that seems to be more important in the, the control of ambient glycine in areas of the brain where glycine is interacting with NMDA receptors as discussed previously. In order to ensure that neurotransmitters are very potent in their effects, but that we don't get any more effect than we want from them, 
we have to maintain the concentration of neurotransmitters very slow, very low in the synaptic cleft. Most of our transmitters are going to be in the axon terminals in vesicles as reserves waiting to be released into the synaptic cleft. And then we need to clear them out of the synaptic cleft as soon as possible, as soon as we use them. That means that we're always transporting neurotransmitters out of the synaptic cleft against their concentration gradient. We're taking them from where there's a low concentration to where there's a high concentration. That means it's energy intensive. And the energy that we use is ultimately the energy from ATP, but it's in the form of ion gradients. Ion gradients just like the ones that we saw in allowing the neurotransmitters to carry out their functions when binding to their receptors and in carrying their signals down the axon as in the form of an action potential. So to clear glutamate, for example, we're going to use the excitatory amino acid transporter. Every molecule of glutamate that we take in is going to come with three sodium going outside the cell and one potassium coming inside the cell and one hydrogen ion going outside the cell. This excitatory amino acid transporter is going to be directly structurally coupled to the sodium-potassium ATPase. The sodium-potassium ATPase is going to use the chemical energy from ATP to take sodium outside the cell, which on this slide is the bottom, and to push potassium into the cell, which in this slide is the top. The energy contained in that sodium gradient that wants to go from the bottom to the top, and in that potassium gradient that wants to go from the top to the bottom, is the energy that is going to be used to push glutamate against its concentration gradient back into the cell. The glycine transporter 2 is also directly and structurally coupled to the sodium-potassium ATPase. Once again, ATP creates the sodium gradient and the potassium gradient. Although the glycine transporter is not directly dependent on potassium, it gets its energy from sodium. Every glycine that comes in comes with three sodium ions and one chloride ion that come through the glycine transporter. So you can see the sodium-potassium ATPase uses ATP to push sodium outside the cell. The gradient with sodium coming back inside the cell is what allows glycine to be driven against its concentration gradient back into the cell. The GABA transporter, I don't know whether it's structurally connected to the sodium-potassium ATPase. I couldn't find evidence that it is. But nothing changes the fact that the sodium-potassium ATPase, using chemical energy from ATP, is what creates the sodium gradient. And once again, we see the sodium gradient three sodium and one chloride, just like in the glycine transporter, that sodium gradient is what's providing the energy to drive GABA back into the cell. If we summarize the different components that are important for exciting a neuron, we have some kind of signal, whether it's sensory, chemical, or electrical, that depolarizes the dendrite membrane of a neuron. That depolarization is driven by sodium flux coming into the cell, or it could be inhibited through hyperpolarization caused by chloride flux into the cell. 
If net depolarization happens, the depolarization leads to an action potential traveling down the axon of that neuron. That action potential travels using sodium and potassium channels. We've blown up the axon terminal to focus in on it. In the axon terminal, we have the synthesis of neurotransmitters that's dependent on B vitamins like niacin, vitamin B6, and folate. And we have the, the action potential reaching voltage-gated calcium channels that allow calcium to come into the axon terminal and stimulate the release of those neurotransmitters into the synaptic cleft. Those neurotransmitters could be excitatory, like glutamate, and they'll depolarize the membrane at the dendrite, or they could be inhibitory, like GABA or glycine, that could hyperpolarize the dendrite membrane. Those neurotransmitters need to be cleared as soon as they're used. They can be cleared through reuptake into the neuron, or they can be cleared through uptake into the nearby glial cell. That reuptake is going to require sodium, potassium, and chloride, and it's going to require gradients of those ions that are created using ATP. If there's net depolarization at that second neuron, that will lead to yet another action potential where these things will repeat themselves. Note that from beginning to end, ATP is used to create the resting membrane potential. The resting membrane potential is what makes the hyperpolarization or the depolarization initiated by other signals relevant. It's what makes it active. We have sodium channels, potassium channels, chloride channels. We have B vitamins involved in the synthesis of neurotransmitters. We have calcium. We have magnesium being very important to the blocking of NMDA receptors. So we see many potential effects for biochemical, physiological, and nutritional alterations that could disturb neuronal excitation. For example, we could have deficiencies of B vitamins. We could have deficiencies of any of these electrolytes, sodium, potassium, chloride, calcium, magnesium. We could have defects in almost any part of energy metabolism that affects the ATP that we need to create those gradients. We could have genetic defects in the ion channels or in the enzymes or in anything that allow, that is required to synthesize the ATP to run neuronal excitation properly. So in looking at how neuronal excitation happens in health, we see very ripe potential to talk about a lot of things that can go wrong with neuronal excitation in disease. The audio of this lesson was generously enhanced and post-processed by Bob Devodian of Torian Mixing giving you strong sound and dependable quality. You can find more of his work at torianonlinemixing.com. To continue watching these lessons, you can find them on my YouTube channel at youtube.com slash chrismasterjohn. Or you can find them on my Facebook page at facebook.com slash chrismasterjohn. Or you can sign up for MWM Pro to get early access to content, enhanced keyword searching, self-pacing tools, downloadable audio and transcripts, 
a rich array of hyperlinked further reading suggestions, and a community with a form for each lesson. If you really want to own these lessons, study them, and get the most out of them, you can sign up for MWM Pro at chrismasterjohnphd.com pro. Right? I hope you enjoyed this lesson. Signing off, this is Chris Masterjohn of chrismasterjohnphd.com. You've been watching Lesson 39 of Masterclass with Masterjohn, and I will see you in the next lesson.